This is episode 481 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. If you ask most Christians, they will tell you their prayer life is usually directed to the Father, or God, or Lord, and always in the name of Jesus. Yes, there are some who actually pray to Jesus, but seldom, if ever, do you hear of someone praying to the Holy Spirit. And why is that? Often it's because we've been taught by well-meaning Sunday school teachers that we are never to pray to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit always gives glory to the Father and the Son and never to Himself, which is basically true but misses the point altogether. So the question remains, is praying to the Holy Spirit wrong? But in order to answer that question, we need to understand exactly who the Holy Spirit is and how He relates to us as a third person in the Trinity. I mean, this should be good. So join with us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I was talking with Karen a couple days ago, and uh, it is true that it seems like everybody's stress level is much higher than it was a year ago this time. Would you agree? Thanksgiving is right around the corner, and then there's Christmas. And last year, we were talking about you know the holiday season, and it's so excited about what we're supposed to be doing, and you know having the kids over, and all that kind of stuff. And this year, there's shutdowns, and there's certain governors saying you can't even have Thanksgiving. If you do, you can only have ten people. So if you got ten people in your house, and Aunt Gertrude shows up, she has to sit on the front porch. I mean, it's 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 insane. And then. A while ago, there was, um, you know, when the coronavirus first hit, there was fear that was going around that it was, uh, you know, just really this end of the world kind of thing, and then none of us got it, and it seemed like it was just a pipe dream, and then about a month and a half ago, everybody got it, and it became a real, real entity to us, and then we had elections going up, and we have this possible coup taking place in our government right now, and it's pretty stressful. I mean, I, I was thinking about some words to describe how we're feeling right now. And our times are uncertain, and some of us are uncertain, because there's so much chaos going on. I don't remember when cities were being burned and looted, and nobody did anything about it, and, and many of them are being protected by elected officials since I was a teenager, and it happened back in the 60s. You know, the in Chicago, for example, like this six or eight months of just constant rioting going on, but that's what's happening right now. And everybody's back of their mind is when is it going to hit Charlotte? When is it going to spill over into Gastonia? Well, we've already had a problem down at Tony's. When is a town as small as Kings Mountain or Clover going to experience something like this? And all it does is raise our stress. How's my job situation? What's going to happen in the economy? You know, uh, all of a sudden now it looks like Biden's going to be a president, but then Trump says, no, he's going to be a president. Then we're going to have the recounts, but the recounts aren't going the way we're supposed to be going. And, and then we're putting people as like secretary of defense or head of the Pentagon just because of social constructs. And it seems like everything that's gone on the last four years will be wiped out. And how is it going to affect us? And, and things begin to, to stress on us. But that's okay. There's certain institutions that we can trust. There's the institution of the court system. Ah, we feel betrayed. There's the institution of the media, the free media, the fair and balanced media. We feel betrayed. There's the educational. There's the church. The church will always stand for truth. Not if you belong to some of the pastor groups I belong to. 
One of the reasons why the election went the way it did is because many evangelicals decided that social justice was more important than murdering babies. And so it's, and it, it's insane what's going on right now, which can lead to depression. You ever felt like just sitting at home and I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I feel depressed. And if I stay in my depression long enough, I'm going to move down into despair. I'm going to almost feel forsaken by God and fearful to even leave my home. You ever been there? I mean, this is the world in which we're living right now. But if we understand the sovereignty of God, all of these change because nothing is uncertain with him. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, God, but you do. And if I know you, that should be enough. The, I, I know that there's no reason for, for me to be stressful because the very hairs on my head are not counted, which means I don't have prior knowledge and I have to acquire that knowledge by counting, but they are numbered, that he already knows everything about me. In fact, he even knows the day that you and I will die before we lived our very first day. No reason for stress. He promises this peace in the middle of incredible stressful times that passes all understanding. The government may betray you. Your children may betray you. Your parents may betray you. Your friends and neighbors, the church may betray you. But Christ never does. He always stands firm because he is sovereign and he is king. And if we focus on that, depression leaves, despair leaves. We never feel forsaken and we're not fearful anymore because we know how it all ends. True? We know how it ends. Well, how do we incorporate these things into our life? How, do, how does this become more than just a message and actually become some sort of truth that we can live by? Last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the supernatural aspect of our faith, and we've been primarily talking about the Holy Spirit, that the Lord came, the Lord Jesus came to provide the atoning sacrifice for our sins so that God would see the sacrifice of his son and declare us justified, declare us righteous, that we are now in Christ, and so therefore his righteousness is imputed to us, and our sins were imputed to him. So when God sees us, what he sees is the righteousness of his son, and so therefore we have fellowship and reconciliation with God the Father. True? But there's another element to this this reason why Jesus came. We find that in the book of Acts, and we find it in the Gospels, and we especially find it in the epistles of Paul. It's so that you would no longer be an orphan. You would no longer live alone. You would no longer have to go where God is in the Old Testament motif. God is in the tabernacle, and he only meets with a few people. And on the Day of Atonement, you can go into the Holy of Holies, one person, and fellowship with God. And so if I want to be with God, I have to go to him and ask an intermediary to take my request to him. But instead, now God dwells in us. And the marvelous part of that is he dwells in us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. When Peter preached his sermon in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall return, inherit eternal life. He didn't say that. You shall receive what we just got, the gift of the Holy Spirit, what Christ promised them, the promise from the Father that will come only when he's gone. And when you receive this promise of the Father, this gift of the Holy Spirit, you'll be transformed into something totally different than you are right now. And you'll be, for example, witnesses with power. Everywhere that you go. 
I mean, why is this Holy Spirit so important? And why are we so afraid? Part of it has to do, and I want you to, I want you to understand this, we really, in the very beginning, we've let our fear of the Holy Spirit help us get it wrong when it comes to him. And I'm going to show you in a few minutes how that is done. Now, doctrinally, we all understand about the Trinity. There are certain truths that the Bible teaches about God. And these truths are very hard for us to understand. It's also hard for us to understand about the Holy Spirit. The first time we see the Holy Spirit mentioned in Matthew, it's all of a sudden when it talks about Mary, and the Holy Spirit will give you a child, and the child that you're conceived with will be of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how that works. I I, I can't explain that. Luke tells us a little bit more. Luke says the Holy Spirit will come over you and overshadow you. And so the baby that you're carrying, Mary, Mary, will not be Joseph. You'll still be a virgin, but you will be, the baby will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. We have no idea how that takes place. You can look in every commentary ever written, and there's no explanation. That's something we're going to have to ask, and we believe it. We know what happened. We know what the the angel Gabriel said was true, but we don't understand how it actually worked out. It works the same way with the Trinity. The Bible teaches us some truths about God, even though somehow it's difficult for us to mesh them together. For example, first truth, God eternally exists as three persons. Not one person with three personalities, not one person with three modes, not one person that relates to Debbie one way and Susan another way and me another way, but three persons, three separate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Two, each of these three persons, and here's where we stumble at, is fully, absolutely, completely, without compromise, God. Jesus Christ is just as much God as God the Father. And the Holy Spirit is just as much God co-equal as God the Father. Yet, there is only one God. One God exists in three persons, and every one of those three persons is fully God. Or to put it in a statement, simply goes like this. The Trinity. God eternally exists as three persons. So when I see Jesus, he's God. When I see the Holy Spirit, he is also God. When I talk about God the Father, he is God himself. Each of those three persons, not attributes, not characteristics, not personalities, but each of those three persons is fully God, yet they're not three separate gods. There is only one God, united in mind, will, volition, emotion, one God. It's not like they have an argument in the Godhead. It's not like they take a vote. Two to one, God the Father goes, I lost that one. The fact is there is one God, one God moving, revealed in three different people. Now, I know that's hard to understand, but if you're really going to understand how the Holy Spirit works, you have to get a grasp on how God is revealed to us. For example, God the Father. Now, We'll start with the ones that we do. I noticed Levi today. When Levi prayed, he prayed to God the Father. When uh, Nick prayed, he prayed to God the Father. He prayed to God the Father, and we pray in the name of Jesus. True? Because that's kind of what we're taught. Jesus did that, so we do that. Pray to God the Father. 
and we asked God the Father certain things, and we prayed in the name of Jesus. So we're praying. When we're praying, there's two-thirds of the Trinity that we're involved with, but there's one part of the Trinity, one-third of the Trinity, that just kind of pushed over there. We don't even deal with him that much unless we need something from him. I need your power. I need your grace. I need your gifts. I need your Holy Spirit. But I want, I want your power. I don't want you as a person. It's the way we've been raised. It's the way we've been taught. It's, it's, it just seems natural to us. So let's look at these three persons of the Holy, of the uh, Trinity. Number one, God the Father right now, currently, today, exists outside of our universe. Do you know why? Because he exists in heaven. He, uh, he's revealed to us as the Father. We didn't know him to be a father, but he's only revealed to us as the Father when his son came. And in the Old Testament, of course, the Father's associated not with approachability or not with warmth or intimacy. You can't have a conversation with God the Father. Every time it seems like God the Father shows up in the Old Testament, the mountain shaking, there's this glow of lightning, fire comes down. I mean, it's, it's kind of a scary deal, is it not? Right now, God the Father is sitting on his throne. His throne is in heaven. Heaven is outside of his created universe. So God the Father is somewhere, if you want to think where he is right now, out there. I don't know how to understand God the Father. I don't know what the Father's like. I, I'm, in the Old Testament time, and, and if, if it happened today, wherever the Father shows up, God shows up, man, everybody just freaks out. They fall on their face. Isaiah sees the father sitting on the throne, and immediately he realizes it's his sin, and he's, I'm a man of unclean lips, and he falls on his face, so what am I supposed to do? And we see John doing the same thing. I mean, it's, it's frightening. It's frightening to be in the presence of someone we don't know, someone we don't have a relationship with, Someone unlike Jesus, who we know a little bit better because he was clothed in flesh and, and did come into our universe. But nevertheless, it's to the Father we pray. It's to the Father we ask things from. And then we ask them in the name of his Son. But there are three persons in the Godhead. There are, there are three gods that make up the Trinity. So what is God the Father like? You know, in the Old Testament, of course, it's a Mount Sinai kind of deal. Um, but in the New Testament, the Son begins to reveal to us what the Father's like. And he does that in John chapter 14. And he does it in answering a question that Philip asked. First of all, Jesus makes a statement beginning in verse 7 and 8. First, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, this is verse number six, except through me. I don't understand what it means to go to the Father. I don't even understand who the Father is. Put yourself in Philip's situation, the rest of the disciples. I'm not even sure how this works. So then Jesus makes this incredible statement. If you had known me, to his disciples, who have been with him for three and a half years, this is the close of his ministry. If you had gnoscoed me, and again, we've talked about over and over again, gnosko means to know by experience, to know by intimacy. You know, this is the word know that Adam knew Eve and she bore a child. And 
And so the fact is we're, we're putting our favor there. We're know, knowing by experience. It's not a cognitive understanding. If you really knew me like you claim to know me, if you have intimacy with me like you think you have intimacy, if you know what I'm really like like you think you know what I'm really like, if you had known me, past tense, if you had known something's already done, you would have known my father also. What? I can imagine if I'm standing in the crowd listening to Jesus with the other disciples, listening to Jesus make this statement. Hey, Steve, if you had known me, by the way, Steve, do you know me? Yes, I know. I've surrendered my life to you. I've, I've given everything to you. I've left my family and friends to follow you. I, I, you are the Messiah. You are, the, you are God. You are the son of the living God. I believe all that kind of stuff. You are so easy to get to know because you're loving and you're full of grace. And I got you. We make movies about you. Do you know the father? No, no. I mean, I, I got this mental picture of the Sistine Chapel. I kind of, yeah, I see how he is in the Old Testament, which is all Philip and the disciples had at that time. I, I'm, I don't really want to know God, the Father. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of like the other Jews, that Moses would go in and meet with God, and he would come out and his face would be glowing. And so the, it, I, don't want, I don't want to ask God nothing. I want to ask Moses, you go in and talk to God because we're fearful of God, the Father. And Jesus said, well, if you'd have known me, you'd have also past tense known my father. I don't understand how that works. You guys are, you respond differently. I don't understand. Well, from this point forward, he says, you know him. And not only that, but you have seen him. Well, wait a second. The God told Moses, if you look upon me, you'll die. So I'm going to hide you in the, the cleft of the rock here because of my resplendent holiness. But Jesus said, if you'd known me, you would have known my father. And not only that, but you do know him. And past tense, you have seen him. Well, how have I seen him? I mean, I get this impression that if I looked at God the Father, that just the fire and, and lightning and, and glory would just burn my eyeballs out. How, how is that even possible? Philip basically answered the question for them, Lord, you're talking about knowing the Father. Just show us the Father. If you can show us the Father, we don't need anything else to believe. It will be sufficient. We will totally understand. Show us the Father. Because I see you, Lord, but I don't see him. Jesus answered and said this, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? The question is not showing you the Father. The question is you don't understand who I am. Let me go ahead and clear it up for you. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? The Father is standing in front of you. Because I and my Father are one, that we are one God in three persons, and every one of us is fully God. And so when I tell you that you know him and you have seen him, the Father, it's because you've seen me, because I am just like the Father, and the Father is just like me, because we are all 
one. I can imagine at this point in time, and this is my theatrical way of viewing Scripture, that all of a sudden their mouths kind of dropped open, like mine would. Uh, I'm, 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 I don't understand. I'm kind of clueless here. I'm, I'm, what do you mean? Okay. Do you not believe that I am, now note this phrase, in the Father? Well, that sounds like the Apostle Paul talking about us being in Christ. But Jesus is saying that I exist in the Father. And not only that, but the Father is in me. We're not walking side by side. We're not three totally separate persons that never come together. This is this part of the Trinity that's hard to understand. That I, as a separate person, and the Father as a separate person, are in each other because both of us are fully God, and there is just one God. Do you understand that? I'm trying to, Lord. Okay. Well, understand this. The words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority. But the Father, look at this, who dwells. This word is what's translated in John 15 as abide. Who dwells in me does the work. So I am here. But the one who does the work in me is the Father who lives, dwells, makes his home, abides in me. Jesus Christ is communicating to them that his relationship with the Father is exactly like the Holy Spirit's relationship with us. These are the exact same terms that describe his relationship with us which is exactly what Jesus is saying. Listen very carefully. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I've never seen God the Father. Well, I'm standing in front of you. No, you're Jesus. No, I am God the Father because I am in him and he is in me and we both are one. Do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me just like you and I are in Christ? Think of the implications of that. What we're doing is we're looking at two persons of the Godhead here, the relationship between Jesus and his Father, and showing how they're interconnected and they're one. And we're going to look at the word dwell and see exactly what that means. And then we're going to take and see where the Holy Spirit fits in and how the Holy Spirit has the same relationship with you that Jesus and the Father had. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Well, who does that? It's the Father who dwells in me. Key word here. Key word is meno. And meno means to remain, to abide, to live, or to be united with someone in heart, mind, and will. Jesus used the same word in John chapter 15. I am divine, and my Father is divine dresser. You're a branch. Every branch that abides in me, lives in me, dwells in me, remains in me, is united with me in mind and will and volition, that is the one that will bear spiritual fruit. Same word here. Jesus says that the Father who lives in me does the work. Where did the work come from? What, What kind of work are we talking about here? Why did Jesus even bring that up? Here's what he's saying. The Father dwells, lives, abides, remains. The Father is united in heart, mind, will with Jesus because they are both one God and they're both fully God. Jesus says that he is in the Father and says that the Father is in him, just like you and I as a branch are in Christ. 
connected to Christ, abiding with Christ. And so the, the, from the vine comes the sap and the nutrients to allow us to bear spiritual fruit that's not produced by us, but produced by the vine itself. He also said that if you've seen Jesus, if you've seen me, that by the sheer fact that you're looking at me, it means you've also looked at the Father. Because Jesus and the Father are one. Remember the definition of the Trinity. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each of them is fully God. Jesus is fully God. God the Father is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. And yet there is one God. They exist within each other. They exist together with each other. They're not totally separate. They go their separate ways and have board meetings up in heaven. They are all just one God. So Jesus said that he and the Father are the same, one God, and yet they're different. They're different persons. That when you see Jesus, that the Father is in him, although I'm looking at Jesus, and when I pray to the Father, that Jesus is in the Father, even though I'm praying to the Father, and then I'm praying in Jesus' name. If you've seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Would you all agree so far? And look what happens here. He throws this work thing out. And then he says this, believe me that I am in the Father. I know it's hard for you to grasp, Philip, or that the Father is in me. But if you can't believe, if it's it's too much for your brain to believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, then believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Well, what, what works are these? Well, it's my proof. I'm offering you proof that I exist in the Father and the Father's in me, and the, the proof I'm offering you are the works that I do that only God can do, that only you attribute to the Father. They don't even know about the Holy Spirit. You attribute to the Father. And if I'm doing the kind of works that only the Father can do, only God can do, then at least believe in those. So the proof now is the works and the miracles and the words and the things that he said. Therefore, if you've seen one, the Son, you've seen the Father, the other, and we can be certain of this because the works Jesus did can only come from God. Tuesday night, we were looking at the story of Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse number 2, Nicodemus comes up, and that's the first thing he says, we know that you are something special. We know that you are different. We know that you are a teacher come from God because nobody can do the signs, these attesting miracles that you do unless they're from God. And that's all Jesus is saying here. If you can't believe yet that the Father and I are one, get your mind around that, then at least believe because of the miracles, because of the works he uses. Now watch this. This is where it gets really exciting. He's talking to Philip about he and the Father being one, existing inside of each other, that in the, in the works that Jesus does, he does from the Father because they're connected together. And then he takes it one step further when he talks about works. And remember, these works are the proof that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. Look what he says in verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me will go to heaven will be a faithful church member, will have your best life now? No, he who believes in me, the works that I do. These are the works that Jesus offered as proof that he is in the Father and the Father's in him. The very works that I do 
the person who believes in me will do also. And greater works than these, because I go to my Father. What? Yeah, yeah. I'm offering to you the proof of my oneness with God the Father. That I exist in him and he exists in me, and what I'm offering to you is the works that I do. I can, I can understand that. I can see that. Nicodemus could see that initially. But I'm going to go one step further. That if anyone believes in me, which means if anyone gets saved, if anyone gets regenerated, if anyone goes through the conversion process, that the Holy Spirit comes to reside within you, we know this after the fact, that the works that I do that prove that the Father is in me and I am in the Father, you will also do and you'll do greater works than those because I am going to my Father. And the disciples are going, I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't even know what that means. You're going to your father. Why would you do that? We need you here. We want to minister with you here. But you're going to go to the father. We know in Acts chapter 2, he was ascended into the father. We know exactly what happened after Christ was gone. Two chapters later, he begins to reveal this to us. Look at what he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I leave, that I depart that they go away. I've already told you that once I'm gone, you're going to be able to do greater works than even I've done, which is the attesting sign to the lost world out there that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. For if I do not go away, the helper, the parakletos, the word means the one that comforts or encourages, an advocate, one who comes alongside. We know this is the Holy Spirit. The, The helper will not come to you. As long as I am here in the second person of the Trinity, there's no need for the third person of the Trinity to be here. The first person of the Trinity, God the Father, is sitting on his throne. He has sent the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to come into this fallen world to provide a way of reconciliation by my sacrificing of myself for your sins to have fellowship with the Father. But at some point in time, I will leave this universe and I will be seated at the right hand of my Father at his throne. But I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send you another the third person of the Trinity, as fully God as the first and the second person, I will send him, the helper, to you. It doesn't happen until I leave. Therefore, it's to your advantage. It's a benefit to you if I do go away. And we know who the helper is. The helper is the Holy Spirit. And he tells us that Back in John chapter 14, if we keep reading, John 14, verse 16, where he introduces the Holy Spirit. And I will pray, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The word helper, of course, is parakletos. It's the same word that Jesus used two chapters later. But he uses the word another. And I shared this with you, I think, two years ago. You know, in in the Greek New Testament, there's two phrases we use for another. One is alos and one is heteros. Alos means another of the same kind. Another just like what you had, not different. If I was going to get another car, I'm going to get an alos car. What I already have is a 2014 Ford F-150 truck that's white with EcoBoost on it. I think that's, yeah. I would get a car exactly like that one. 
same mileage, same everything, so that you wouldn't even know that I got another car because the car that I, the truck that I have out there looks just like the truck I had now because I got another Alos vehicle. But if I got a Heteros vehicle, I could have any vehicle out there. Well, I, I had a Ford F-150. Before that, I had a Mustang, so I got rid of my Mustang and bought a truck. So I still got another vehicle, a Heteros vehicle, but it's different. When Jesus is talking to us here, he uses the word alos. I will pray and I will ask the Father when I'm gone to send you someone just like me, identical to me. And he will abide, dwell, live, remain with you forever. Forever. I won't, Jesus says, because I will ascend and I'll be seated at the right hand of the Father. But I will send you someone that will live with you and dwell with you forever. He's known as the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. That's one of those strong negative words. Cannot receive under any circumstances, period. Why? Because the world neither sees him. I mean, Jesus told John in John chapter 3, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit is like the wind. Neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. How will I know the Holy Spirit? For he will dwell, remain, abide, be united with you in heart, mind, will, and volition. He will dwell with you, and he'll not be outside of you. He will be in you. The same relationship that Jesus and the Father have is the same relationship he says you and I will have with the Holy Spirit when he ascends into heaven. We know, of course, that the world cannot receive him. We see that from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, where it talks about the fact, verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. If you're talking with a lost person, you're trying to explain to them how the Holy Spirit speaks to you or how you have a relationship with Jesus Christ or how he answers your prayers or how he feels closer to you than a brother, it is like speaking Greek to them because our mind, their hearts have not been quickened. It's like trying to describe to a blind person the color orange. It's orange. He can't you see it? I can't. I don't even know what that means. But once they're quickened like you and I were, and the Holy Spirit illuminates that to us, then everything changes. And then he concludes this by saying, and again, he talks a lot more about the Holy Spirit than maybe we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. But he includes it this way. You guys are afraid I'm leaving. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Well, when? I mean, how is that going to happen? How is Jesus going to come back to us after he's ascended into heaven and not leave us as an orphan? He's coming back to us in a person of the Holy Spirit, one with Jesus, yet separate in himself. We see that in the book of Acts. We see that promise. It's the Holy Spirit that gives them power. It's the Holy Spirit that gives them unction. It's the Holy Spirit that changes people's lives. The same Holy Spirit that lives in you and I that we're afraid to embrace. So let me summarize all this, and then I'll draw to a conclusion. One, God the Father exists outside the universe he created. Right now, he's seated on his throne. It's exactly what the Bible teaches. Two, God the Son, Jesus Christ, came into the universe 
to accomplish the will of God, this ministry of reconciliation. And Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father. How do we know? I'll give you an example from Acts chapter 7. Do you remember when Stephen was being stoned? And as Stephen was getting ready to die, it says this. And when they heard these things, this is the Jews who, of course, Paul was giving his approval of that. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed their teeth at him. Just We're just going to kill him. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, there's one person of the Trinity, gazed into heaven supernaturally beyond our universe to where God dwells, just what Isaiah saw and John saw, and saw the glory of God, that's the first person of the Trinity, and Jesus, which is the second person of the Trinity, standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said at his testimony, at last words he said before he died, said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God the Father. In heaven, there's God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where's the Holy Spirit? Stephen was full of him. Stephen was experiencing him. The Holy Spirit lived in him on earth. This is, this is the reality of our spiritual lives right now. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit while he's on earth. He sees the glory of God the Father and Jesus standing at right hand of the Father. But while he was on earth, it was the Holy Spirit that empowered Stephen to preach this sermon. It was the Holy Spirit that gave him gifts. It's the Holy Spirit that was the God that lived in him. It was not Jesus and it was not the Father, but it was the Holy Spirit. Yes, in a sense, it was all of them. But the scriptures want to clearly delineate that the Father and the Son and the Spirit had different functions within the Godhead. Again, God the Father exists outside the universe right now, seated on his throne. Jesus Christ right now is with the Father outside of the universe. He's already come into our universe, into our world, clothed himself with flesh, accomplished God's will. He uh, was raised from the dead. He defeated death and the enemy. He was ascended into heaven. Ten days later, the church manifested itself by experiencing the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit right now is not in heaven. The Holy Spirit right now exists in you and me. It's what makes us different it what makes us change. It's what, it what gives the Father and the Son glory. Yes. Unfortunately, it is the Holy Spirit that we're most afraid of. And listen very carefully. If he is truly God, we disrespect him. We disrespect him almost every single day by viewing him as a power or a force that comes from Jesus, but not co-equal with him. I can't tell you the times I myself have prayed this. Father, would you send the power of the Holy Spirit you know, on me or whatever to allow me to accomplish whatever task that I'm doing? Okay, that's what I'll do. I'm the general, God the Father up there, and I will dispatch some of my troops or the power of my troops to go over there and, and help Steve. When actually, the Holy Spirit already lives in me. All the power of the Godhead exists in me. He's already provided everything that we need. Colossians chapter 2, we are complete in him. Remember? 
You ever pray to the Holy Spirit? Dude, no, man, this makes you weird. If I start praying to the Holy Spirit, I'll end up going to a Benny Hinn concert or, or something of that nature. I, no, that's just strange. Matter of fact, the only people I ever know that pray to the Holy Spirit are strange ladies who have prophecies that never come true that just seem weird. And I'm just telling you my personal experience. No, that's just, that's just wrong. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't mind praying to God the Father because I've got the Sistine Chapel kind of picture of him. I don't mind praying to Jesus or in Jesus' name because I see, I, I, I like Jesus. I can relate to Jesus. Jesus is flesh and bones for me. But praying to the wind, praying to a breath, praying to something I, I can't get my mind around, it, it's difficult. But listen very carefully. It is the Holy Spirit and he alone who lives in us. It is fruits of the Spirit. It's not fruits of the Father or fruits of the Son. It's fruits of the third person of the Trinity that empowers us. Lord, I ask you to to give me grace and love and and peace and long-suffering when I'm dealing with this person. Well, what you're asking for is what, that God will now dispatch from his treasure chest of Holy Spirit fruits, part of that for you? No, what you're asking for is God himself, who already lives within us, to manifest who he is in our life. But we never ask him to do that, the Holy Spirit. Instead, we ask God, the Father, or God, the Son, because to do differently seems weird. Why? I believe it's because we're afraid of the Holy Spirit. When Karen was proofing this, she said, for me, it's more ignorance of the Holy Spirit. I just don't know who he is. I think both of those answers are right. But if I did understand who he was totally, would I still be afraid of him? I, I want to know what God the Father is like. Philip, if you will just show us the Father, Jesus, that'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, you're looking at me. The Father's like me. I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's the advantage for us of having three gods, but all gods being one and co-equal. It's really hard for us to understand that Jesus and the Father are alike. Okay. Then what's the Holy Spirit like? I mean, how can I get my mind around his personality? Well, it's really simple. The Holy Spirit is like Jesus. Because I'm going to send you another. I'm going to send you someone just like me. I will not leave you as orphans when I go away. And it's really better for you that I do because now the Holy Spirit will be in you and dwell with you and be part of you rather than you having to physically always hang with me. Yet each one, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, have a different function in our salvation and in our sanctification. Now, I'm going to close with this. I really want you to get a handle on this. I've shared with you theologically the 10 steps to our salvation the Bible teaches about. For example, it begins with election. You know, God's choice in us. We see that in the book of Ephesians. Then there's this effectual call, the gospel call, the message that we hear, that God begins bringing that to us. Some people hear the message and nothing happens. Those people that hear the message that God has placed you know, those that I called, or those that I foreknew, I predestined, those I predestined, I called. So we have this gospel call. And then these happen really 
quickly, almost instantaneously. There's this regeneration that takes place where all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes in and changes my nature because when he changes my nature, I'm able to place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in a conversion process. And in doing that, God justifies me. I no longer find him guilty of sin anymore. Instead, I find him just as if he never sinned. I declare him righteous because of what my son has done. We find out in Romans chapter 8 that we're adopted into his family. I, I don't experience that. I just know that it's true. And then there's a sanctification process where I begin to live out on a daily basis what it means to be a Christian. There's a perseverance aspect of this where no one can snatch me out of the Father's hand. Those that are truly his belong to his. Eventually, as part of the salvation process, I will die. And when I die, I'll have this glorified body and and spend time with the Lord. I mean, we know that that this is, biblically speaking, this this chain of, of salvation that takes place. And the Bible talks about every single one of these. Watch this. Election is something the Bible talks about done by God the Father. He is the one that chooses us from the foundation of the world. When it comes to the gospel call, it is the Holy Spirit that quickens that message in us. It's the Holy Spirit that softens up our heart. It's the Holy Spirit here on earth, not God the Father, who currently right now today, if someone got saved today, God the Father is seated on his throne. The Lord Jesus Christ is uh, seated at his right hand, but it's the Holy Spirit that draws you to himself. When regeneration takes place and all of a sudden there's this changed nature and the old man dies and a new man is born again, that comes from God the Holy Spirit. When there's a conversion that takes place where now faith I didn't have is now imputed to me so I can place that faith in the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father, that's the Holy Spirit that's moving in us. Justification is something God declares from heaven. Because of regeneration, because of conversion, because of the death of my son and the belief that Steve has in the completed work of Christ, I now declare him righteous and impute to him the righteousness of my son. Adoption is something the Bible talks about. It appears God is the one that now adopts us into his family. But sanctification is purely the act of the Holy Spirit. Your entire life after you come to faith in Jesus Christ is trying to surrender your life and yield your life to the Holy Spirit to allow him to do his work in you. Right now, all of us in this chain, if you're saved, is in this sanctification process where we try to grow in the grace and the the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, and we do that through the person of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to our perseverance, God says this is what's going to happen. No one will snatch them out of our hand, but it's the Holy Spirit that applies that truth to us here and now. Our death, it's not something Christ is involved with. It's something God the Father has already decreed, and the Holy Spirit is is here with us when that happens. Glorification is something God the Father has promised, but it's the Holy Spirit that will enact that in us. None of these acts of salvation have anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ other than the fact that his sacrifice provided the way for us to incorporate these blessings in our life that are imputed to us primarily by the decree of God the Father and the application of God the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? And how can that happen? Because they're all equally God. It's not like one is less than the other. They are all equally God.
So why are we afraid? Why do we disrespect the Holy Spirit? Why do we kick him to the curb? We don't include him in our prayers. We don't include him in our Bible study other than this. Holy Spirit, will you open my eyes so I can, in other words, I want something from you. Will you give me something? Okay. And therefore, I give, and I'm not, I'm not downplaying this. I'm not saying you shouldn't do this. But we give all honor and homage and everything to the first and second person of the Trinity, yet the one who lives in us, the really the one that we should be most intimate with, the one that we should know when he speaks to us, because it's him speaking to us, when we hear his voice, because it's him speaking to us. When we go, you know, I, I was really praying, and God spoke to me. It's the Holy Spirit that's doing the speaking. How do we, how do we learn to know him more? Why are we afraid of him? Well, maybe it's based on our experience. Mine is, I had a bad experience with a bunch of people who claimed what I'm telling you right now, and there's nothing in their life that, that manifested that. And so I figured the whole thing was just a joke, and I built these walls up between me and the Holy Spirit so I wouldn't end up like them. Or we, it's our church upbringing. I go to an independent, fundamental, premillennial, 1611 Baptist church. You don't even talk about the Holy Spirit other than some sort of force. But if you grew up in some church of God or assembly of God, maybe you would be more open to that. Or maybe, maybe it just makes me feel uncomfortable to worship the third person of the Trinity that Jesus describes to Nicodemus as wind, whose Greek Spirit means breath. It just seems strange to me. And, and when I pray, I want to have some sort of mental image that I'm praying to. So God the Father, I kind of got that. It's much easier with Jesus Christ. Let me tell you the mistake that I've made my, my entire life. I'll be sharing with someone about salvation, and they'll come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I, I'll teach them how to pray. Do you know how to pray? No, I don't. Well, let me show you how to pray. And I'll turn the chair around and I'll sit it right in front of it. And I said, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye, Jesus Christ, because we all know what he looks like. We've seen all the videos and the pictures. And Jesus Christ sitting in that chair, looking at you, saying, what can I do for you, my child? So we te- I, I've done this. I try to teach people how to pray by praying to an image that they can kind of relate to. But, and the Holy Spirit's like going, I'm the one that's now filled him. I'm the one that's regenerated. I am the one who's there. And I, you know, praying to God, praying to Jesus is still praying to the Holy Spirit since they're one, but there's still three separate persons of the Trinity. And so we spend all our time trying to know God the Father through God the Son, and all we're interested in in the Holy Spirit is what he can do for us, the power he can give us, the jams he can get us out of. Maybe I only can believe in what I see. Okay, we haven't seen any of these. Got a bunch of red print that talks about Jesus. I can see him better than the Father. And Jesus talks about the Father, Holy Spirit. It makes us feel a little more comfortable. Or maybe, just maybe, we're more comfortable with using the Holy Spirit as a power source, like a Star Wars force. May the force be with you. May the Holy Spirit power, not his person, not his personality, not how he thinks, not what his voice sounds like, not learning to be intimate with him, but just this force. We feel more comfortable doing that than embracing him for who he is. This is the question the Lord asked me. So, uh, Steve, 
if it is true the Holy Spirit can be grieved, then what excuse are you using for not getting to know him? I, 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 it just feels uncomfortable. It just is different. And then I have that line in my head from The Chosen. I shared this with you on Tuesday, where Matthew, Jesus is calling Matthew to be one of his disciples, and Peter runs up to Jesus and goes, well, what are you doing? What are you, what are you, what are you, don't you know who this guy is? I mean, don't you know the, the sins he's committed? He's a terrible tax collector. And Jesus says, you didn't get it when I chose you either. And Matthew goes, but this is different. You remember what Jesus said? Get used to different. Get used to different. It was like, Lord, it's uncomfortable. Well, get used to uncomfortable. Get used to different. If, if it is true that there are three persons in the Godhead, and the Bible clearly tells us that two of those three are outside of the universe, seated right now on God's throne and at the right hand of the Father, interceding for me currently. And one-third, or one person of the Trinity, lives with me, empowers me, is, is inside of me, that helps me walk according to the Scripture and, and imputes righteousness to me. And if the Holy Spirit truly is the one that lives with us right now, wouldn't it be wise for us to get to know him a little better? So Steve, what excuse do you have for sliding and grieving the Holy Spirit? I don't know. That's what he told me this week. Were you ready to put an end to that? Yes, I am. I am. And I'm asking you to do the same. We've talked about this before when we went through what the Holy Spirit was like and looked at the many passages about that a couple years ago. But I want to encourage you, when you get ready to pray, that it's not wrong, although I think I was even taught that as a kid, that it's wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit, because that's like giving glory to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never takes glory for himself. He always pitches glory to the Father and the Son. Okay. But he's the God who lives in you right now. He's the one that's closest to you. He's the one that will empower you. I mean, it's almost like I have to pray to the Father, and then at the fa- I pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, and if I pray to the Father in the name of Jesus for God to do something, that what God does is what he rubber stamps it, and then Jesus signs off on it too, then dispatches it back to the Holy Spirit who lives in me, who accomplishes it. That's kind of the way we function. It's a corporate hierarchy here. But it's the Holy Spirit, it appears, that is involved with my sanctification. So in addition to praying to the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you just pray to the Lord Jesus, which is fine, try praying to the Lord Holy Spirit, to the God who lives in you. And if you'll start doing that, I think, I may be presumptuous here, that your prayers will be a lot like mine in the very beginning, where they started out by saying, I am so sorry I have neglected you and I have grieved you and I have treated you with less respect than I've treated God the Father and God the Son. Would you please forgive me of that? And he will, and he'll begin to reveal himself to you. And remember, Holy Spirit's not going to tell you to do anything God the Father and God the Son disagree with. There's still one God in three persons. And the Holy Spirit is just as much God 
as God the Father and God the Son. Amen? Let me pray.